Mr. Saakashvili, it's it's a it's a rare pleasure to to uh, get a chance to finally meet you and to uh, to finally talk to you. Um, both Shadi and I, uh, you know, have been to Georgia recently. Uh, I've been several times, uh, and uh, I, for one, have, have certainly followed your. Uh, your career um, uh, with much interest through the years. I, you know, I, 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 I guess I'd like to maybe just start this conversation with uh, um, you're, you're known as, as really one of the, the, the great reformers. You know, when one looks at the sort of post-Soviet space, it's the Georgia is, is, a, is a rare success story. And uh, quite frankly, you know, police reform is one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the big uh, successes of, of your tenure. Uh, one of our one of our colleagues, perhaps you you might even know him, uh, Jamie Kirchick, joked that you know uh, Saakashvili should come and help reform police in the United States. <laughs> I was wondering, I was wondering if uh, if you have any reflections about uh, you know uh, how how what works in reform ultimately. Let's start with that because you know you're such a such a figure in this. Well, I think what ultimately works is public trust because uh, I heard very often that. Uh, uh, People have been saying, well, you know, it's hard to do reforms because they're not really popular. People don't understand them. So the fate of reformer is not to be envied. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. If you're a real reformer, you do something that affects the life of people in a good way. And if the, the, the reform that really affects them in a good way, the reform with the results of which they can feel instantly and appreciate is the real one. If you are doing something that would make their condition even worse or won't affect it in any positive way, then it may, there is no reform. So from that standpoint, yeah, I mean, uh, we need to get uh, to demonstrate results. Every reform needs to have quick wins and to have long run, long term strategic goals as well. And, and Mr. Saakashvili, Shadi Hamid here from the Brookings Institution. Sure, um, sure. I'm, I'm, you know, when you're watching from abroad and you're seeing the, the protests yes. and unfortunately some violent rioting as a minority um, here in the U.S., are you surprised about what you've seen? How are you sort of processing these images? Look, I mean, the experience of foreigners or you know, domestically or people living in the U.S. Likewise, uh, with the U.S. police, um, in most of the cases, not that good, right? So it's uh, uh, it's the thing is that uh, in in the U.S. you are not automatically happy to meet the police unless you are like uh, under attack and uh, police comes to uh, rescue, right? But if you are just in the encounters are not automatically positive i think in most cases they are negative you know but for, and that's i think that's really shows you that uh, things need to be fixed there uh, I, I mean look i mean for instance when we were doing police reform in georgia uh, in georgia uh, before we did the reform uh, police would be very much happy if you had made some road infractions um, uh, they they would be very more than happy to, uh, first of all, to sit you out, to look for them, to provoke you and even that, and then to go after you, right? In most cases, to be very, uh, for just for their own corrupt things, just to get extra bribe from Well, in the U.S., it's not bribes, but still, I mean, when, when, whenever, the, I had cases when I, I would drive a car and then a police car would be sit, standing somewhere behind the bushes, 
waiting for us or for me or for some friends with whom I was driving to make this interaction and then to just follow us, follow us. And uh, sometimes there is this uh, sense when you interact with U.S. police that they get sadistic pleasure from, you know, lecturing you or catching you or, you know, that's, or, or I've heard that in some places uh, uh, they get the part of the fines which they levy on people. And that's very, that's a very, very bad system. That's actually a very old fashioned and not a modern system. Police goal is not to provoke or be happy about infractions. The goal is to somehow avoid them and to have public trust and to be seen by public as friends, allies, uh, someone who, to whom the people should be more than happy to uh, reach out or to or even to meet, and uh, that's that's not my experience with the American police. So, so um, one of the questions I think that again your your career trajectory is uh, it's so fascinating about it. It's on the one hand, you know, Georgia under you was a great success. Uh, there's been a rollback, a lot of reforms in Georgia. Uh, you've then also tried to make efforts to to make reforms in 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 Ukraine, in Odessa, when uh, uh, as you were governor. But but at the same time, the the picture in Ukraine was was very mixed. And so, I mean, can you maybe reflect a little bit about about reforms, the stickiness of the reforms, and how how difficult it is to to for reforms to sort of take hold in 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 different sort of circumstances. Well, um, there are different models, and obviously uh, you, there are also differences between countries. But uh, in Odessa, it was in many ways a success story cut short because we made the first ever public service hall in Ukraine, which was then replicated in many other places. And in Odessa, it was the most efficient one. Uh, we kept customs um, out of corruption uh, for more than a year and a half, and that was quite a remarkable achievement considering what are the traditions here uh, of huge corruption in basically every customs point everywhere in the country. Uh, we managed to do a number of other things that, that kind of were, were deemed by population as achievement, but again, the problem is uh, why Ukraine reforms don't have the same foothold uh, as, uh, as they did in Georgia. In Georgia, we did almost every reform simultaneously. You would not just take some one part of the public administration and say, okay, why don't we just reform it, don't touch the others. You cannot limit yourself to one field because it's all interconnected. And uh, so if you reform part of the police, you need to reform all other parts. You need to reform prosecutor's office. You need to reform uh, judiciary. Uh, and you need to reform the security services. Uh, and in Ukraine, they just took one part of the police, which was the patrol police, which were reformed according to Georgian blueprint. Uh, my team was doing it together with Ukrainians. And it's still relatively better or better part of Ukrainian police than all the others. But then... You know, for instance, if uh, someone is arrested by patrol police or detained briefly and then they are brought to, uh, to go to the investigation, investigation has not been reformed. Or uh, a prosecutor's office uh, started only limited reform only recently. So, so, so that's why trying to reform one part and uh, not, going, not doing this, the other parts simultaneously leads to this situation when uh, it's like cleaning a beach in one place, right? Okay, <laughs> if you don't, uh, then the waves will come and then so still uh, wipe it out or, uh, or maybe flood it again, right? So either you build the, like all the, this, like this barrage all across the sea 
or uh, it's not going to work in one place. So that's that's more or less what's why it hadn't worked so well in Ukraine. But if serious reform requires such an all-encompassing approach, then the risk there is that you end up pissing a lot of people and there's more resistance, and then it requires very strong leadership and strong leadership can further, you know, uh, polarize society in certain ways. So it it becomes very contentious, and it seems like some of that happened. And maybe that's what you need. You have to accept that there will be opposition and it will be contentious. But, I mean, looking back at your own tenure as president in, in Georgia, were you surprised by the degree of resistance and opposition to your reforms, or did you expect that it would be that difficult? Uh, in Georgia, they uh, because pe- people felt the Im- instant impact, a positive impact on them, they were very popular. The only problem is that people uh, appreciate it initially, but then they kind of get used to them. Uh, but the uh, people whom you, whose private, private interests you've touched or whose special interests you've rooted out, uh, they seem to remember it very bitterly and they're waiting for the moment, they're sitting you out for the moment when they can really get you. So in Georgia, at any moment of uh, what, when I mean, after we started to like, for instance, like fire all these old bureaucrats and replace by new non-corrupt ones, uh, but the the old ones, they they we did we didn't send them to Siberia, right? Or we didn't shoot them. They would continue to live in the downtown of the capital, nice houses, drive around in their nice cars. They still had lots of leverage, and every time. They needed to uh, undermine us. They were out there staging violent rallies, uh, you know, by buying lots of media coverage, uh, looking for any any mistake we made and to make the blow up its importance and make people uh, shocked by it. So that's how they acted. Now, uh, the but the still. So it's it's a so the window of opportunity for reforms eventually locks down because. Uh, shuts down because because people you know as, as, as I said you can you get all these um, results uh, which people are appreciated by people but then they stop to appreciate it while the enemies keep hating you all the time. However, what is important is that people stop to appreciate the reformers quite fast, but. And when they try to roll back some of those reforms, it does really work. What's really happening in Georgia, that system we had created is still in place, and the government that came with all the slogans to uproot it actually couldn't uh, undermine most of it. And that's the most remarkable part of it. Uh, you know, we created state institutions that are quite strong. You look like how Georgia is coping with COVID epidemic here better than any of the post-Soviet countries. Why? Because we had real, really functioning, non-corrupt institutions, very good healthcare system, which doesn't exist in Russia, Ukraine or a neighboring Armenia. So that's where we were. On the other hand, um, in, if you look at but in Ukraine's case, um, there is this thing, you know, we, uh, sometimes we say, well, corruption is like a tumor, like a cancer. Uh, but in fact, I, I, one friend was recently telling me, it's not, it's a wrong way to describe it. In fact, corruption is an organism. And cor- that organism thinks that we who fight or who are trying to cor- fight corruption, we are the cancer, we are the tumor. And so far, that organism of corruption, which is like fully self-functioning organism on its own, is for fighting us off quite successfully, this tumor. So, uh, tumor of anti-corruption fighters. So, again, you, 
that's that's where we, how you start to kill that organism because in Georgia we really killed it and that's what enabled us to build something else here it's functioning and it's you know very much alive and kicking that's the problem well, so, so I, you know, just to follow up on, on what you just said and, and Shadi's question, I mean, it's it gets into the question of politics. And in, in Ukraine, uh, even after yes. Maidan, you know, there was uh, there was still factional. There was no there wasn't a consensus like a, a, a consensus because of, of outside interests, of oligarch interests and, and different political factions and parties. And, of course, Russian invasion, you know, impossible to do during the, the course of a war. Uh, but, uh, you know. Can you tell us a little bit about then your situation, your attitude, your your feelings right now about Ukraine? You've been appointed as the head of this uh, this new anti-corruption body uh, by yes. President Zelensky. Uh, National Reform Council. National Reform Council. Yes. Uh, and so, so can you tell us a little bit, uh, you know, for our listeners, um, your sense of the, the the situation and politics in Ukraine right now? There's been a lot of criticism well, of Mr. Zelensky. Gone. You know, I mean, there's been some criticism about Mr. Zelensky, but at the same time, you know, to your point. Uh, about the, the nature of politics and what's necessary to, to do the kind of reforms. Can you reflect about that tension a little bit that Shadi was, uh, was uh, yes. addressing? Well, National Reform Council is kind of uh, uh, all, all across the board, like uh, and, uh, this coordinating thing under the president that uh, encompasses, uh, that has all the branches of power in it, and they gather once a month and they discuss and take decisions on what reforms should be uh, uh, undertaken. And then uh, basically we submit it directly to the Ukrainian parliament after we make a decision on it. But usually it's a streamlined process. Once you agree on it, then every uh, you know, major leader of parliament is present at that meeting. And then uh, the president uh, submits it through our council to the parliament. And then Usually it gets better chance to be passed. Theoretically, we need still to check and see it. But um, the idea, uh, the, the thing we, we here is in Ukraine that you have, first of all, you have, of course, oligarchs. And oligarchs, they are kind of interested in status quo, more or less. Uh, that's that's their natural instinct. Uh, so, so that's one pro-status quo force. Uh, almost all of them are pro-status quo. Uh, but then you have a second way, a second uh, layer of uh, businesses, and these are these are not billionaires um, that have not been doing kind of their business with state budget or uh, haven't uh, want haven't gained any monopolies. But they are the ones who are kind of. Uh, uh, Big business, but not oligarchic one. And this is an important layer. You would get like first, like maybe for the, like 90 people out of the 100 people on Forbes list uh, here. And those people are interested in change. And that these are these are remarkable uh, number of people because you are talking about uh, dozens of people with, with that have, have between 50 and maybe 500 million dollars. And um, and they they are pro change force in Ukraine. Then you have medium and uh, small business that of course is totally pro change, but then they they have much less leverage because their voice doesn't count as much as uh, the bigger ones. So these are more or less uh, this is equation within business community of uh, pro change versus status quo force. Now the problem is that on the other side of it, there is this uh, Ukraine's bureaucracy because in real terms Ukraine is not a real state; it's a quasi state. It is not. It doesn't. Ukraine doesn't have functioning state institutions. But uh, despite being the largest country in Europe, but what Ukraine has has very well uh, uh, existing bureaucracy that uh, and bureaucrats 
that represent not a state interest because state doesn't really exist, but represent uh, interests of very concrete people and clans, and every bureaucrat knows more or less uh, whom he represents as an oligarch, whom he represents as a corrupt interest, and so and that's that's they're, they're very powerful. I mean, you can see wherever you go, whatever you touch, you immediately encounter those interests, and they are powerful. They know how to defend themselves. They, they know how to uh, use people in parliament, how to use people in media, um, how to undermine just an initiative. And that's the, that's the whole thing. In Ukraine, uh, look, I mean, when I came here uh, to work for the, for the Ukrainian reform, uh, I made a number of speeches and, and they were widely acclaimed. And it was uh, in early 2014. When I you know, watch or hear some of the speeches again, Nothing had changed. Maybe names had changed. But all the same issues are very important, and even more. Some of the Ukraine reforms have been saying it for the last 25, 30 years. And we've been just saying it, and they, they, things haven't been happening. And one should ask why they aren't happening, because there are many others who don't want them to happen. And this is this enshrined, corrupt, huge organism, body, that, that is very powerful here. Are you optimistic that in your, your, your new role that you can actually make uh, headway against this? Against Look, this entrenchment? Uh, President, President Zelensky, obviously, personally, is not part of corruption, and that's already a big, big advantage, because when the first guy is not uh, personally in any of the shadow transactions, that helps. Now, that does mean that he does may have, have to make compromises. The problem is that those who are, they are so powerful that they can block some of his initiative, and sometimes that's trade-off. Even if Ukrainian people gave him full carte blanche by giving him parliamentary majority and that's telling him, okay, here is your majority, you don't need to have big coalitions, but it really didn't work out that way. He still has to build coalitions because people whom he brought into parliament, not all of them were, first of all, some of them were uh, from the very beginning representing those shadow interests without Zelensky really filtering them, but it was very hard to filter them in such a short period of time. And second, some of them just you know switch sides when they are inside because the temptation from the other side is quite big. I mean, Zelensky is not giving them any corrupt incomes, but the other side is offering them that, and not like many people cannot really resist it here, right? So that, that's why he now has to build coalition. So that's a problem. But the thing is that now Ukraine is hit by a huge economic crisis. Uh, people, uh, what I, I've been talking to heads of, uh, you know, to the, to the people who have this big retail chains, and they're telling me that even after quarantine has more or less been eased, it's, they still have 25 to 30 percent percent drop in their sales, which means that people are really going to be, get quite desperate. Um, budgetary crisis is going to widen. IMF money uh, that has been given as a first tranche is not will not cover most of the Ukraine's needs for the budget, and the problem. There might be a, not only big economic crisis, but also big budgetary crisis, which can lead to political crisis. But I see crisis not only as a challenge, I see it as an opportunity. Because maybe when things are really bad, things are going to improve after that. Because, uh, as Obama used to say, they, they would get worse before they get better, right? Because the problem here is, look, uh, for many, gener- for like last, like this, 30 years, there was an automatic assumption in Ukraine that no matter what, Ukraine will always have enough grain, steel, uh, some other things to sell. Uh, it would enough. It would have enough of, uh, of all internal transactions and external transactions, and it could feed 
or very well uh, internal bureaucracy, all these corrupt clans, and still survive. So that was the assumption. It's no longer the case. Yeah, and and yeah. Um, yeah. So, and just to shift gears a little bit, um, I'm I'm really curious. I'm I'm not someone who follows um, uh, Ukraine or Georgian politics very yes. closely. And as an outsider, and you know, following your career, one thing that I found kind of intriguing, but also a little bit surprising is how fluid conceptions of identity are. Because you were previously the president of Georgia, then you became the governor of a province in Ukraine, and now you're still in Ukrainian politics. So I think for for me as an American, I think to myself, that's sort of like me, um, you know, being born and raised in America and then deciding to run for office in Canada in the middle of my career. Maybe that's not the best comparison. But for our listeners who might not be very familiar with how identity yeah, well, there, works. There are, there are such cases when, like, some Americans have been... Yeah, yeah, but in this part of the world, uh, nations are really intertwined, and problems and challenges are really very similar, the first, the first thing. I spent... I came to study... I came to study Ukraine as a very young guy, and uh, all, overall, I spent already... Of, uh, I had spent 14 years of my adult life in Ukraine, so it's quite a lot of time. But it's not about me personally, but it's about challenges and things we encounter here. And, and there, that's why people can identify with me from time to time. You know, there were periods here where I was the most popular politician in Ukraine for a protracted periods of time. I was perceived as a threat by existing elite. Uh, and uh, that's also kind of and this makes it the case for the fact that I was standing up for something real. Uh, but uh, so that but in many ways, it's a unique experience. Of course, I agree. You don't see many parallels, or you don't see any parallels, basically, with the world of today. But if you look carefully what we achieved here, many of the Ukrainian reforms that had been done, they do carry Georgian DNA. Police reform certainly was done by Georgians. Um, the public services reform, most of it has been done by Georgians. The, uh, the electronic purchases of, uh, the, of transparent auctions for state contracts. It was a Georgian-initiated system, of course, which Ukrainians kind of adapted to their in their way, own way. But in many ways, we we something we suggested there. I mean, most, like I would say. Most of the reforms that have been more or less had positive impact on Ukraine lately, they uh, have had some Georgian uh, roots or or even Georgians running them because first head of Georgia, Ukraine's national police was Georgian from my team, uh, for deputy prosecutor general, general, general who uh, uh, arrested, who made the most uh, you know, historic and uh, important arrests of corrupt prosecutors was David Sakmarilidze. He was uh, formerly deputy prosecutor general in Georgia. Uh, then we had uh, we 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 had number of people coming uh, uh, from the, the on the health side to trying to reform the health system uh, on public services side. So uh, and even now today the head who runs uh, uh, investigation, deputy head of the anti-corruption service in Ukraine, the only really non-corrupt uh, law enforcement agency. You know, see, Georgians managed to make it uh, not only uh, be here, but to make their impact here, which really shows that challenges and problems are similar. Um, the um, you know, people are willing to listen to people who have the same experience, uh, and we are trying to do our best. And let's see how we continue. But so far, it's that has been the case. Yeah, and, and isn't it also part of it that um, you know before, obviously, before 1990, you were all. Uh, one country, there there used to be a common Soviet identity, and that's what makes 
um, that part of the world distinctive, that there is that history. How much of that plays a yes. role, the fact that you... Um, it plays a huge role. It plays a huge role because, because well, look, I used to have election campaigns here. And when I, we would go into walk into uh, some, you know, Ukrainian, uh, like, whatever, living quarter and uh, see people there, there's not much difference between people, you know, there's uh, yards or police yards or Kiev yards, uh, very similar pre- pre- people with very similar problems, very similar approaches. Yeah, people are... I would not overplay the ethnic difference too much. Remember, Ukraine is also a melting pot. Ukraine is a very uh, uh, diverse country. I mean, Ukraine's identity consists of so many identities that it's very hard to detect what exactly is being Ukrainian. And and because it's it's over, I mean, Ukraine has been overrun by so many empires from all sides. Uh, bringing in their culture, their you know, language, or their uh, tradition. Plus, it's also this free spirit of Cossacks. Uh, and Cossacks integrated lots of orders. Indeed, uh, author of the first Ukrainian constitution was uh, Philip Orlik, who was uh, coming, who was a Czech coming from Belarus. Uh, then we had a number of Ketmans, you know, had heads of Cossacks being foreigners. So it's it, Ukraine has the tradition of a welcoming foreigner, embracing them. Uh, and I would say it's the last big melting pot in Europe. And uh, and it's it's not only its weakness, but I think it's major strength when you look carefully at it. So, so that's how it's. So you know, Shadi is a, a born American of Egyptian descent. Uh, I'm I was born in Yugoslavia, then you know Croatia. Uh, in the 90s and I became an American so can you tell us a little bit I mean you're you're still uh, uh, I mean is it fair to say you're you're leading the UNM party in Georgia Uh, do you you yeah well I mean uh, obviously uh, I am the well most of people believe that I'm leading but I'm not leading in daily activities because uh, there are a lot there are a bunch of uh, well, younger or maybe also the localized leaders there, so I don't need to run it day to day for sure. Uh, do you do you do you do you do you want to? I mean, you know, I guess it's an emotional question ultimately. Also, what Shadi is something we we grapple with a lot on this show is this sort of sense of of belonging and feeling that you're you're part of it. Do you, is obviously you know Ukraine is your home. You're involved in politics there. Do you do you have a, a, a pull for for Georgia? Do you feel like you 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 want to get back there at some point? Maybe as well, a eventually, citizen? eventually, uh, I, I I will take this decision when we have change of guard in Georgia. Well, I'm sure that my party is going to win this year's this year's uh, parliamentary elections. Um, not only according to the polls, but according to the guts feeling that I've got that finally there is time for change, and the change will come again to the people who have developed that reform model, who had made basically the most successful reform in post-Soviet space, something which is not really properly understood by foreigners, what we did in Georgia. Sometimes they have such cliches about my administration, like, look, Saakashvili was doing some good things, but then he did many mistakes, and then this and that, and that they're like, they're the part time of the past, but in reality... We did the most successful reforms, at least in post-Soviet space, and maybe one of the best uh, models in the world. Now, 
No one has done anything better here. So that's why our people are being invited now to Uzbekistan to advise the new president or to Kyrgyzstan or even to countries like Rwanda or Botswana in Africa or Albania in Europe. Uh, there is nothing surprising that they're here. So we created a reform model that had not been outmatched by anyone. So if Georgian people um, uh, and then look at the figures, you know, when, when I was running Georgia, Georgian economy grew four times four times and it was against the backdrop of uh, of a russian invasion and the world economic crisis since Imanishvili is running georgia for the same period of time uh, georgia's economy has gone down now if you look at figures seven or eight percent so four times increase and going down for the same period of time uh, even before the crisis so there, there is an obvious contrast. If you go to Georgia and you ask people, they say everything that you see had been built by Misha, that's to say by me and my administration. Nothing had been developed by these guys. So there is an obvious contrast. And it's not, if they choose my party, it's not about going to the past. It's about going to the model, which is way superior to what we have now and is superior to most of the things that we have in post-Soviet spaces. So this is not... Uh, this, uh, some people will say, yeah, Georgia needs a break. They need to find something new. Okay, but uh, people will choose to walk to whatever was where they felt that themselves better. So if they choose for my party, which I think they will, that doesn't mean that we need to replay all the old things. We need to come up with some new programs, new things, modern, modern things. Are, for instance, like if you look at our Houses of Justice, uh, you know, back then, Hillary Clinton would lecture all around the world that Georgian Houses of Justice were the best one. Uh, British uh, House of Lords had a two days hearing on bad, b- b- Georgia's Houses of Justice. But in fact, today I would not uh, do them because today's in today's world, you 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 have everything online. You don't need to. It's, these are public service halls. Not to be misled by the name, public the Houses of Justice, public service halls. You don't need this uh, huge, beautiful public service halls because today's technology allows for much more simple solutions. So you need to come up for, with new things, with new ideas, new and young people, but to keep that drive which we had uh, to move, move really fast. Would you, would you say, would you say that, that uh, I mean, we can also talk uh, depending on time. I mean, it sounds like, you know, your party in many ways is relying on, on you know, call it the Saakashvili brand in the sense that, you know, it's very much associated with you. But you're, you're being ambivalent about whether what role you'll play. We can talk about that. But the other thing that's that's interesting to me is, is uh, you know, I, it's your your uh, the, the your, your time in power was really very much about about bringing Georgia as much to the West. And and and, uh, you know, the, the it was seen as sort of westernizing reforms. Do you see that still as sort of the template that the West is the template for reforms or uh, are you proposing sort of a, you know, your Georgia's own way or, you know, smart reforms that are that are not necessarily, you know, Western, if that makes any sense. Because, well, look, yeah, yeah I, I get it. Look, first of all, our reforms were not never purely Western because it's obvious some of the things we've done, they were much better than the West had ever had. For instance, like Georgian customs, IFC said that that, that was the best customs in the world. They were, it was better than Danish or American or German's customs, right? So we were not copying German or American example. We were doing sour things, which was better. Our police was way better than most of the, West, the Western world's police forces. Now, uh, 
public service halls, we had the fastest registration of many things. Again, we were on the better side. Sometimes, of course, there, you know, you have these approaches also from our Western counterparts when they would say, yeah, they're doing good, but, you know, they are too fast. They are doing this, all the shortcuts. They could, could never fully appreciate what we were doing because there is a little bit this approach, you know, okay, McDonald's can only come from America. If some small country comes with McDonald's, that's not really immediately welcomed by many people, right? The same thing for state administration. If you come up with something more innovative, there is an automatic suspicion that it's not you know, what it should supposed to what it looks at on the surface of it, right? So we had these issues, but of course, geopolitically, Georgia, Ukraine has no other uh, place to strive for to go to, but the West. Of course, we see all the shortcomings of the West. Of course, we know that Europe is massive. Of course, we see the problems in, say, the United States. But what are the alternatives? The alternative is a feudal, backward, brutal model of Putinism or some other dictator dictatorships. That's not an option for our countries. Of course, democracy with all the shortcomings is still the best one, and the real democracy still only exists mostly in the West. That's that's the point to it. And, and, you know, on this point, I mean, one debate that we're having now here in the U.S. is that with these, you know, with riots, with political violence, with increasing tension over whether Donald Trump will win another term and whether the other side will accept Democratic outcomes. So if, if, if Trump wins, will Democrats accept that? And if Biden wins, will Republicans accept that? Do you feel like that the Trump era has made it harder to sell the idea of the so-called – I know they're not, as we said, they're not fully Western reforms, but sometimes that's the way they're perceived. As American soft power declines in the Trump era, if you agree with that characterization, does that make your job harder? Look, um, you know, Donald Trump, he – used to visit Georgia as a businessman, but already basically as a seasoned politician by that time. And he was praising very widely Georgia reforms. He was saying that it's a model that America should copy. Uh, he liked our tax system, and he said that a public statement that's something that should be uh, implemented in America. Uh, he also suggested uh, half-jokingly that I should be part of the U.S. government when uh, <laughs> it will be his government. Yeah, that's our old uh, on YouTube, you can see. But, uh, so he gets it, he gets, so he can also get that he can get learned from other countries. And frankly, some of the things he has done in terms of deregulation, in terms of spirit of uh, opening up the economy, I fully share and like it. Yeah, you have the point, you, of course, what you asked is also relevant, that America is now, by advocating unilateralism in many ways, and by advocating this thing that why would, why would we just help uh, other countries, if it's not like both ways, if it's not transactional, that's not how people around the world used to see the United States. The United States was this big, always had been this big, uh, benevolent, uh, kind giant that wants to help just for the sake of helping. Not for the sake of getting commercial contracts or something, but for the sake of helping. And that's really built the reputation for the United States, which is much bigger than any transaction. It cannot be always calculated in monetary terms. Yes, there is this issue right now that uh, very often we, uh, these, we heard these things that, okay, now uh, the other countries have benefited from the U.S. The U.S. should become much more pragmatic. It should. 
it's normal from any leadership to want it. But it, this uh, idealistic part of it, this, uh, if you want this charitable part of it, should not be lost. That's very important. Yeah. And this it's fascinating what you say about Donald Trump. I wasn't aware that Trump was aware of Georgian reforms. Oh, that... he was very, very, very much fascinated by oh, it. Oh, wow. And he, he was he even when he was in Georgia, he was calling major U.S. television shows that like uh, bomb, bombarding them with uh, some news about Georgian reforms and etc. Yeah, he he was he he liked what what he saw as a uh, less intrusive government, more open tax system, very fast things, very deregulated economy, uh, and uh, basically what he saw as paradise for investors. He loved all that. All of that. Can, can I can I push you? I, you know, you're, you mentioned Europe is a mess, and I mean, you'll, you'll get no argument from us on this. But it's interesting, you know. Uh, it's it's uh, there's a little bit of this. The tension right now is like where where's where's the mess lie? And one of the debates ends up being between liberalism and you know this illiberalism. I, and the challenge, of course, is you know you have you have uh, Putin given giving uh, interviews uh, with the Financial Times saying that the liberal moment has passed, and then you have someone like Viktor Orban as well, sort of echoing this. And Orban, Orban's Hungary exists in sort of a very very sort of troubled uh, nether zone between you know. I, well, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but you know that what what state the Hungarian democracy is in. So I don't know. Can you can you talk a little bit about that, es- especially you know what you've just said about Georgia and the and reforms and the the criticisms and and uh, uh, sort of finding its own way. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I don't think someone can wind back any democratic gains with those people. I mean, there can be different rhetorics. But in due time, any government will be, will be changed. And whenever people make their, up, up their mind to change their governments, no slogans and no, you know, no screwing screws would work because, uh, because people are used to making their own choices in our part of the world. And I don't see anyone in Europe or in America winding it back. Yeah, so, but of course, the liberalism is not over. I mean, the world has, I, I would argue that, with, especially with this COVID uh, uh, thing, globalism is not over. See how global are our challenges. And the COVID uh, epidemic pro- has proven very clearly that you cannot tackle it unless you also go global, unless you cooperate, unless you exchange information. See, China tried to do it in their own fashioned kind of secretive way uh, by controlling information and it, it suffered and the world suffered because of that. And so only cooperation, only um, you know, joint, joining forces can tackle these issues. And I think that's, uh, that also means that what we see as a mainstream liberalism is no liberal model is also not gone anywhere because people when, when people want to have transparent government, people want to have choices, people want to have free elections, people want to have um, possibility to criticize their leaders, and it's a natural instinct of every human being. You cannot go up against the instinct of human being globally when you are when the challenges are global and we, we have to tackle them globally because the last thing you want is to uh, you know go against basic human instincts in that case. And uh, you know, and on this point of um, basic human instincts, and I know we're uh, we're getting close to the end, so you know we'll start to wrap up. But uh, we wanted to ask you about the role of religion in Georgia, in in particular. And um, you know, when we talk about human instincts, I mean, I would argue that 
um, people want to believe in something, that religion can contribute to a sense of national identity. And when you think about Georgian identity, as, as far as I can see it, um, the Orthodox Church is an important part of that. And, it's, and from what I've read, it seems that you've gone through a certain kind of um, um, religious evolution where religion has become more important in your, in your own life. And um, I don't know how you would describe that, but do you see that as being, when we talk about Georgia building itself as a nation and becoming stronger, what role should um, the church play and what role should religion as a basic conceptual framework play? Look, uh, I mean, religion might play a role in my life, but certainly I would not uh, impose it on anyone else, anybody else, and who not insist that it should play a role in anybody else's life. That's a matter. That's again, we are going back to basic things. These are these are human choices, and you cannot uh, impose on human choices against their basic instincts. That's what their instincts are, uh, and this is very personal and private. Um, in Georgia, uh, indeed, you are totally right. It was connected to identity of Georgia's historically, because for a small country run. Um, uh, um, over very often by invaders. That's what, sometimes the, almost the last thing that kept them together, right? But, uh, but on the other hand, when you look at young people now, they are so different. They are so much more open. They are so critical of everything, anything, and any institution. And some of them are also critical of. Many of them are also critical of things that might happen in the this church or another church. That's normal. I mean, they are, uh, again, this is their individualistic world. They travel, they go around. You know, I installed this system where we brought in every year 3,500 Americans to teach, 2,500 Americans to teach English uh, in Georgian schools, the program that was killed by, by my successors. But for several years, every small Georgian village got an American teacher. So kids got very global. They speak English. They go online. They, um, they, they see the world. They can compare. So this uh, does not allow any dogma to take hold, hold and to impose itself. Of course, it also sometimes the bad things also spread fast. But on the other hand, there's people are becoming much more critical of everything. So I'm very grateful for the historical role of Georgian Orthodox Church. Georgia is one of the first Christian countries. It's a huge identity for Georgia. It's a, it's a huge asset for Georgia, but uh, it can not be a pretext for uh, violating anybody else's thinking or uh, or imposing thinking in this, because that's uh, it's not going to fly in the modern world, and certainly we are trying to be part of that modern world. You know, just a follow-up question on that. You know, coming from the Balkans and the the, the role of the, sure. the Orthodox Church. I mean, it's it's a complex one. And again, I, I don't need to even, but just for our listeners. And and one of the things is, in fact, how it is a political actor in many ways, and how you know, to not to put too fine a point on it, especially in Georgia's case, it's it's uh, that your your neighbor to the north, Russia, is you know very adept at using that. Well, look, look, Russia. Russia has uh, the the way how Putin sees restore Soviet Union. You are exactly right. This is his way of saying that it's not it's some kind of orthodox union, so which includes, which should include, according to him, and in the worst nightmare scenario for us, most of Ukraine except the Western Ukraine, which is Catholic, Georgia, Armenia, Belarus. So all these countries that have more or less orthodox Christianity, right? And that's how Russia sees it. Now, uh, the thing is that uh, it's also true that 
there is this issue with, I would say that we did these reforms and we were, in terms of reforms, we were the most successful Orthodox country. But the Orthodox uh, Church opposed your reforms as well. I mean, you had you yeah, had fights some of with them, them yeah? did. Some not all of them. Some of them did. But as I said, uh, yes. Also, if you look at all many Orthodox countries like Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, well, Russia, of course, and the others uh, in Ukraine, there is this issue that somehow these countries I can I cannot directly trace it to the Orthodox Church, of course, but these countries are kind of. Uh, had some more issues and more problems than many other countries. That's that's obvious fact. I would say in Georgian case, we were the most successful, fastest reforming Orthodox country, and that that also one was a major source of irritation for the Russians. I think when Russia attacked Georgia, not, not was not because some not very savvy Westerners would say we provoked them. Russia attacked us because. They wanted to punish us because they, by themselves, they don't like anyone being successful in this part of the world. They think that Orthodox world is uh, basically more or less doomed to fail. But the Russians, they are all, are all the only ones who can, on the one hand, keep chaos and making sure that it fails, but on the other hand, when it fails, to take over and keep some kind of order. That's more or less historic imperial Russian context that is still very much real. Why don't they don't want Ukraine to reform? Very simple. Why are all these uh, pro-Russian factions in Ukraine parliament are so afraid that I might achieve something here? And they're expressing it very loudly. Because if Ukraine reforms, that's the end of Russian empire. Uh, you know, it's exactly the same way there was this issue when Catherine the Great wrote to Friedrich, uh, the emperor of uh, you know, Prussia, we should never allow Poland to start and implement successful reforms, then we cannot destroy it anymore. That's exactly the approach of Russia towards its neighborhoods. So they punish Georgia for reforms, but when God forbids for Putin, Ukraine reforms, and then we can prove that another big Orthodox country, basically the largest country in Europe, can really make a difference and change, then it's the end of all these Russian myths, centuries old myths, not only the new ones but invented by Putin. Putin is very mainstream from his, his approach. He has not come up with anything new. He basically is a concentrated... Uh, Think for all these Russian past imperial ideologies and uh, you know concepts. Well, Mr. President, thank you so much for your time. This has thank been, you so this much, has been really really fun. Uh, yeah, hopefully uh, uh, we'll see you either in the states and uh, maybe in Ukraine at some point. Okay, yeah, see you, you so then. Much. See you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Actually, I mean we're still recording. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, what'd you think? <laughs> Fascinating. Um, you know, as someone who, you know, doesn't doesn't know a lot about him and you, Demir, gave me some advanced reading to kind of get up to speed. Um, yeah, my first sort of direct experience with the famous uh, Saakashvili, uh, it's certainly fascinating. You get a sense of his larger than life character, someone who has big ideas, big dreams, ambitions, and someone who has at least the potential to be a strong leader. He was already a strong leader. And, you know, people can debate whether being a strong leader is always a good thing. But it's clear that, um, you know, he, he's a force of nature in his own right. You know, it's it's a uh, um, it, it would this interview for me, I wish he was here because then you could build like a, a more of a rapport yeah, yeah. and actually do it. Uh, and this is the first time I've certainly met him. So, you know, but uh to me, the, the, the core tension is this question of, of basically successful reforms and how that abrades against democracy. It's something that you brought up. And I, I, I think that, that, you know, as you said, like a larger in life character, um, 
he's been criticized for, you know, authoritarian tendencies in many ways. Uh, but you can see that there's, the, you know, again, the way he was even talking about coming back to Georgia, you know, not foreclosing and, you know, really associating the reforms with him and how it's polarizing. I don't know. It, it, it's fascinating. I think that there's the, the crux there is one of of how do you do reforms in a democratic society? How do you maintain democracy? Uh, he seems to be talking a good talk. But again, he's, he's clearly oh yeah, larger in life, very, very ambitious, ambitious guy. Yeah. And he seems I mean, he seems to me to be a small D Democrat that he is a believer but precisely as you say, Demir, there's a tension there because if you want to actually, you know, get things done in a corrupt society, there, I, I don't want, I don't want it. You don't have to. It's not like you have to become more authoritarian, but there are certain things that will seem to your opponents as having a kind of authoritarian vibe to them. Because at some point, you got to be kind of aggressive. At some point, you got to anger people. At some point. You got to push hard, and sometimes that will be perceived in a certain way. So I don't know if there's any way you can really um, avoid that entirely if, in fact, you are a, a quote-unquote strong leader who wants to actually implement controversial reforms. Uh, so, and and um, and this is a debate that you have in in every young democracy, and and we had this debate. During, during the Arab Spring in a number of Arab countries where you would have new democratically elected leaders who were trying to go up against entrenched interests, the deep state, um, the Ministry of Interior, the, the military. And um, you can either be uh, very respectful of those old entrenched interests or you can push harder. But if you push harder... Th that is going to be that that will get you branded as an authoritarian, as a would be tyrant, so on and so forth. And we even heard a little bit about this from one of our previous guests, the former mayor of, mayor of Charlottesville in our own country, uh, Mike Signer, who was making the point that he came in as a weak mayor in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he wanted to actually instill reforms and change the way business was done. And what he found out was that there was blowback almost right away where people were saying, wait, um, you're you're literally a would be Mussolini. You are you're an authoritarian. You're a tyrant. So he would be presiding over over these city council meetings and people would actually call him a tyrant. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the the the, the thing that that I'm not that aware of, but I am sort of watching Georgia and, and sort of the post-Soviet space. And this is where our sort of. Uh, areas of focus differ. But, you know, you're talking about sort of uh, the model of struggling democracies. The fascinating thing about Georgia is in so many ways, you know, they had, uh, I think, two terms of, of, of Saakashvili and, and his reform agenda. Uh, and as we heard, and as it's apparent, a lot of it was successful, and a lot of it stuck. But the blowback then ends up being, uh, and he, you know, he, he stepped down at the end and, and handed over power, but it's, it's oligarchic capture, basically. I mean, what's happening right now in Georgia is is really um, uh, that, that kind of, I guess, democratic backsliding. It seems to me the interesting thing about Georgia, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's I don't know what other countries have had that level of, you know, like really solid democratic reform and then this amount of uh, recession and now we find ourselves in this sort of interesting polarized populist moment where the entrenched oligarchs are... 
uh, fighting both, uh, uh, you know, uh, Saakashvili's party and some splinter parties of former allies of, of Saakashvili who have, you know, sort of aligned for it. So it's a democratic, but like a lesser and a very populist democratic moment in Georgia right now. I mean, do you have that in sort of Arab countries or, or other sort of, if you can think of other democratic transitions that have, you know, ended up in this place where it's, you know, it, that it's, well, I mean, it's it's two decades past, not quite, but almost coming up on two decades of democratization. And you have this like very imperfect democracy right now, very, very flawed, lots of corruption, lots of backsliding, but it's still, it's democratic and very populist and very sort of personalized. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the sad thing in the Middle East is that um, there aren't really any true democracies to assess at this point, with the exception of Tunisia. And you have some softer authoritarian countries that are in a kind of in-between hybrid space, but you can't call them uh, d- democratic. In, in the case of Tunisia, is interesting because in, in the most recent presidential elections, after about um, you know eight or nine years of you know somewhat democratic and an actual democratic competition and vigorous debate and some fears of backsliding. Tunisian democracy is still very much alive for all of its faults, but but in this election, they voted for their first full-on populist president. So here's someone who, uh, Kais Saeed, who uh, came out of nowhere. If you had brought up his name two years ago, no one would know what you were talking about. He doesn't have a party. Um, so he really came to power and to, to sort of popular admiration really as an individual, as a very distinctive character. And part of it was about fighting corruption. Part of it was being the establishment parties are bad. They're, they're corrupt and they're bickering and they're not, they don't have a bold vision for the country. I'm going to come in because I don't have any attachment to the entrenched interests. It's, and I want to bring the voice of the people to politics and I'm going to have a direct relationship with the people that transcends the party structure. I'm not beholden to a party or these old-style politicians. I'm not the kind of guy who cuts backroom deals and in halls of smoke or whatever. So that's what was very interesting. Um, and uh, uh, he, he's also a little bit odd. One of his nicknames in Tunisian politics is, is Roboman because he talks like a robot um, in a very kind of staccato way. And um, so he's just a weird dude. But people like his weirdness and his eccentricity. Um, and uh, But then he kind of runs into the fact that changing Tunisian politics is difficult. And the expectations that people had as this kind of populist insurgent, you know, that doesn't always lead to the changes people are expecting and people are impatient. Well, what's what was fascinating about this, again, you know, that knowing a little bit about Georgian politics, right? It's first, I mean, it should be clear. I, I was saying Georgia's a democracy. I don't know how it's ranked now currently with the things. And, you know, they've had all these protests recently to try and reform their electoral system that the incumbent Georgian dream was trying to keep out opposition parties and do all sorts of things. Last I understand, they've 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 buckled right before the the uh, the the COVID crisis and you know the upcoming elections should give opposition parties a a better leg up. But the interesting thing about it is, for all its democratic successes, 
And for all that uh, President Saakashvili is saying here that basically the party is of the young people and he's just on the side, but you still see how, first, how proud he is of the reforms, how much they're personified in him. And, and he's not really running, well, he's not even running, supposedly, but, you know, he's, he's presenting himself or his party as running on his legacy, on his very personalized legacy, so not as an outsider, still a very polarized figure. And it's interesting that the incumbent, you know, oligarchic, uh, some would say quite corrupt uh, current regime within Georgia uh, is running like the outsiders, like keep Saakashvili out. Uh So it's still very personalized politics, despite all of their successes. So it's really fascinating, again, is like how this seems to be operating. How does that work on a left-right spectrum in Georgian politics? And maybe that's, that's obviously not the best way of looking at it, but just maybe for our listeners who are more familiar with American or European politics, we have the incumbent Georgian dream, which is sort of populist with some authoritarian tendencies, at least that's what their critics say, um, and then Saakashvili, who um, is is a big part of this opposition party, which is called what, UMN? UNM is his UNM. party, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where they would fit on the spectrum, because in some ways Saakashvili has some populist instincts himself. Oh, no, clearly. No, the, it, look, it's it's hard to really peg these things down. One of the, the, the things, and we didn't really get to talk to him about it, but it's, you know, the economic reforms, I think, were also big. I mean, he's very proud, clearly, of of the—, the uh, uh, the customs reforms and things like that. But I mean, he was very much a pro-market guy. Yeah, what he said about Donald Trump to me, I, I didn't, I, that's just surprising to me. Maybe that's that you, you sort I, of... I, I had heard something about this, but I, I, that was, that was, that was good stuff. No, the, the, um, the interesting thing is, is, uh, again, the more you talk to people and sort of very broadly in the post-Soviet state, uh, space, there is no left, right. That's well, not on economics in particular, the an entire generation, not not least of all, uh, our, our our dear friend Ani Chikvatsa, who helped who helped set this up. You know, it's it's a whole generation is 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 so. Uh, seared by the experience of just their parents and the poverty that 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 communism has has wrought. Never mind all the imperial stuff that Russia, you know, basically ran all these 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 countries and and the the depredations and, and and trauma of that. But just the trauma of the economic system. So you have, I think, an entire generation that has completely cut its teeth on on um, uh, you know these very uh, libertarian style economic reforms. And I think most. Reformers in the Soviet space end up sort of really embracing a lot of this stuff. I mean, quite frankly, a lot of the the early Russians in the nineties did as well. The they the the uh, I think the the divide. I'm shooting from the hip a little bit, but it's it ends up being between these sorts of entrenched business interests uh, on the one hand, the oligarchic class, and the means to fighting that being a more market-friendly thing. It doesn't map onto left-right properly. Yeah. Now, of course, the problem is is that you can't do politics in any of these countries without money. So behind everyone is some some moneyed interest, ultimately. As a great, I, as a great philosopher once said, um, behind every... Behind, <laughs> behind every great politician in Georgia is a great oligarch. <laughs> A great woman oligarch. <laughs> All right, Shadi. Well, this was fun. Uh, yeah. Look forward to, to talking to you again soon. Yeah, talk to you later, Demir. All right, later. bye-bye.